You know, all of us, by nature, we want to have success. We want to be victorious in life. We want to win. And we go to great lengths to do that. We want to make sure that all our efforts, that all our hard work is not in vain. We want to make sure that at the end of our lives we have not labored for nothing. And sometimes we do crazy things with this desire to succeed. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed with it, with a state, a sense of perfection, that we'll quit because we're afraid that that desired outcome will go unmet. Still, others of us are far more determined. And so we spend our lives surrounding ourselves with those things that are going to improve us. All the kind of resources that we could possibly think of. Tools, coaches, information, anything that could help us to persevere, to meet that goal. To, at the end of the day, be able to look back on our lives and say, that was a success. We go to great lengths. The same is true for ministry. I can tell you, with all my heart... I want to see Redeemer succeed. I labor diligently. I hope and I pray that things will work here. That we will be established as a church body that would far exceed my years. That would far exceed my lifetime. That would be able to do greater things than I could even imagine. That I could even hope for. And it's to that end that I labor. I want to look back and know that I didn't waste my time here that this was not a lost cause. Paul was the same way. Paul wanted to make sure that his labor was not in vain. He wanted to make sure that that his sufferings were not pointless. He wanted to make sure that all the energy, all the time that he committed, all the blood that he spilt wasn't for nothing. And, he's, and that's what we're dealing with today here in, as we look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. If you remember the context of this passage, in Acts chapter 16, Paul is in Philippi, right? He goes into Philippi where he encounters a young girl that she's, she's possessed by a demon which allows her to be able to give fortunes. She keeps prophesying and prophesying, tell these fortunes. And so Paul actually cast the demons out. And this makes her owners really angry because they were making a lot of money off of her. And as a result of that, these owners, along with the crowd, grabbed Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy and took them before the governing authorities. And they stripped them and they beat them and they threw them in prison. And then later that night, God did a miraculous thing in that He caused an earthquake that resulted in the doors being opened and their chains falling off, which inevitably led to the salvation of the Philippian jailer. The next day, when everybody sort of come to their senses and realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and they had no right to treat him that way, they kindly, promptly, and forcefully asked him to leave and never come back. And after suffering... And experiencing that shame, he eventually made his way to Thessalonica. 
there to do the same thing, to preach the gospel. And while he's there, rioting occurred because of the, those who were opposed to the gospel. They ridiculed him. They beat them. They took Jason out and they really beat him and he had to pay them off to get them to stop. And it was so bad that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had to flee one night before the church could thoroughly be formed. And so they made their way down to Athens. And as they went down to Athens, Paul always has Thessalonica on his heart and on his mind. He wants to know that they're okay. He wants to know that he has not labored in vain. And so when they arrived in Thessalonica, he sent Timothy back to see how they were doing, to make sure that they had endured the suffering and the persecution that they had experienced. Paul wanted to make sure that his efforts were not wasted, that he had not labored in vain. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 1-4 is Paul's report of what he has heard. Uh, it's his response to Timothy's report. Timothy's come back, he's told him about the situation. And in this we get a glimpse of Paul's motivation for ministry. Motivations that if we were to embrace them, it would change the way that we looked at ministry altogether. And it would guarantee that our labor is not in vain. Here Paul gives us three keys to a fail-proof ministry. Keys that redefine the way we think about our service to God. Three keys that can motivate us to persevere in fulfilling our ministry. And ironically, you can even put it on a t-shirt. No guts, no gain, no glory. Let's go ahead and let's read the text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or from impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In this passage, the first key that Paul gives us to a fail-proof ministry is boldness in God. In verse 1, Paul reminds them of what the Thessalonians had already proven in their lives and in their witness to the gospel. He says that you know that our coming was not in vain. You, more than anyone know, that, that our efforts were not wasted because your lives give evidence to that. They give evidence to the fact that our efforts were not meaningless. You have proven over and over again that the word, the gospel has come to you not only in word, but also in power, with great conviction, that you have been changed by it. Your lives bear witness to the fruitfulness of our ministry. When we looked at chapter 1, we saw that the Thessalonians had embraced the gospel in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. They had actually become imitators of Christ and of the apostles. They set an example in word and deed so that their faith had sounded forth throughout the region of Macedonia and Achaia. It was spreading. And their lives were characterized by repentance and faith. He says, you know that our ministry was not in vain because you yourselves prove that it was not. So, if you ever want to please your pastor, 
Okay, a little bit of advice. Give evidence in your life that his ministry is not in vain. Show him that, that your lives are being changed. And all this happened despite the suffering and shame that they had faced. In verse 2, Paul says that even though they had suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as, as Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy had been beaten, had been stripped, and had been imprisoned, and even though they declared the gospel in Thessalonica in the midst of much conflict, they were still bold. Suffering and shame did not hinder them from preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And suffering and shame did not hinder the Thessalonians from believing the gospel. You know, we often wonder how that could be. You ever think about Paul's life and how he could endure so much? I mean, he, he got beat down all the time. I mean, this guy... Is he sadistic? Is he just some egomaniac that just couldn't get it through his thick head? Maybe he got he, he suffered one too many rocks to the brain. I don't know what his deal was. But this guy was all about it. You know? I mean, he, he, was, he must have been suicidal. I don't know. What possesses a man to be stoned and left for dead in Lystra... And then as soon as he comes to, to pick himself back up, still covered in dirt and caked with his own dried blood, and walk back in there and preach the gospel. This is unbelievable. What kind of boldness is this? And when we tend to ask those questions, don't we usually kind of compare ourselves? We kind of look at that and we're like, we see... We see Paul and, and, and allow, it either causes doubt in our own minds or we begin to make excuses for ourselves or maybe we just distance ourselves from God's call to discipleship. You, we might say to ourselves, well, you know, God called him to that, but he didn't call me to that. Or we may say, well, if, if Paul was willing to suffer like that and I know that I'm not... Maybe I'm not really a believer. Or we might just try to ignore it. We look at it as a very uncomfortable thing. And so instead of, we just put it aside rather than praying for discernment and how that might actually apply to me. What God might actually be calling me to and how that might look a bit like what Paul had experienced. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And that includes imitating him in a willingness to follow God, even if he calls us to suffer. Christ suffered. Paul suffered. And you and I have to be willing to suffer. But fortunately for us, we don't stand in our own strength in the face of suffering. If you read 1 Corinthians 2 or if you read Acts 18, you know that Paul pleaded to God in fear and in weakness and in much trembling when he was in Corinth. Jesus sweat drops of blood as he pleaded, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove it from me. But nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. 
neither Jesus nor Paul stood boldly in their own ability. And neither will you. None of us will stand if He should call you to die unflinchingly confident in your own strength. None of us will be bold in and of ourselves. We will embrace God's call in the moment just like Paul did in weakness. But Paul can stand. He can be bold. Paul can courageously endure suffering and shame and even death because he knows his confidence is not in himself, but it is in God. He says, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Paul's confidence was not in himself or in his own words, but in completely another, in the power, in the truth of God. Paul recognizes that the very reason he has life and breath and everything is because God who spoke the world into being, God who gave you life, God who gives you the very breath that you take right now is with you, empowering you to do His will. This is God who sent His Son to live the life that you could not and to give that life, to pay the penalty that your sins deserve. He gave that up. And after three days, He rose again to new life to prove to us that God was indeed satisfied with His sacrifice, that there is no more need for punishment for sin, that death itself cannot even hold us. And that He would rise again, or that, and that all would rise one day and stand before Him in judgment. That's God's power. That's God's truth. That's God's gospel. The power for salvation to all who believe. God's means of bringing you from being an enemy of Him, one who is rebelling, who hates Him, to being His child, from going from death to life. That is God's power. And it's because of that, because Paul has seen that time and time again, that he is bold, because he knows that God has the truth and the power to change lives. That he can take those opponents, if he wanted to, and make them brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he can stand in the suffering, in the shame, in the pain, in the face of death, because he knows that God is able, that God is sufficient, This is God who works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Though God can do all things according to His holy will, God could have delivered Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy from the suffering and the shame that they endured in Philippi. Do you realize that? God could have at any point in time just changed their hearts so that these opponents received the gospel message and believed it. But he didn't. God, he, he could have sent plagues upon the people. He could have caused a pillar of, fire to, a pillar of fire to stand between the people who were opposed to Paul and himself to protect him. He could have even struck them dead in that moment, but he didn't. God allowed him to experience that 
that suffering. God allowed him to experience that shame. He permitted that. But as Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy were sitting in that jail cell that night, still praying to God, still singing praises, God's power showed up. So that the very ground beneath them shook. So that the doors fell off and the clasp that had bound them had been released and they were freed. And God used that to, to put forward His truth so that the prisoners heard the gospel and that the Philippian jailer And not only him, but also his family believed in the Lord Jesus. God had a plan there. He was able to do it. And he sent forth his truth in his time for his purposes. And that made Paul bold. God knows what he's doing. He has the power to do it. And we can trust and be bold in that. There are reasons why we don't have the same boldness Paul had. We trust in ourselves rather than trusting in God. We love comfort. We're afraid to put ourselves in positions where we have to trust in Him. Afraid of what might happen. What pain we might experience or hardship we might have to endure. We fail to meditate on who He is and what He can do. We don't rest in God's sovereignty, in His truth, in His power. And some of us, some of us in this room may not have this kind of confidence because we've never truly repented of our sin and believed in the Lord Jesus. God's truth, God's power for salvation for all who believe is in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that power changes lives. Do you have this kind of guts? Are you willing to be bold for God? Because if no guts, then there's no gain. The second key to a fail-proof ministry is that it must be commissioned by God. Paul says in verse 3 that... Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Our exhortation, our plea, our encouragement to you to turn from your sin and to believe in Jesus Christ is true, it's pure, and it is honest. It does not spring from error. It is not false. Instead, our message is true and accurate. It does not spring from impurity or unclean intentions. Instead, our our Motives are holy and pure. It is not attempt to trick or to deceive you. Instead, our method is honest. It's our attempt to inform you of the truth. Our goal is not to gain power by persuading you to believe in some sort of false message. Our appeal is not sensual trying to use you to satisfy our own impure desire for pleasure. Our objective is not to deceive you in order to gain or profit from you materially. 
We don't try to find gain in any of these things. Instead, our appeal is pure. Because we do not define gain as the world does. We're not preaching for profit. To gain power, or to gain pleasure, or to gain wealth and possession. Unlike so many rhetoricians and false teachers that were out there in that day who preached and who taught for money or for gain or for sexual favor or to gain power, they weren't doing any of that. He said, our gain is found in God. To love Him. To do His will. To spend eternity with Him. Christ is our hope. He is our priceless treasure. Therefore, we'll count all things lost for the sake of Christ. We will, as C.S. Lewis said, trade making mud plies in the slums for the holiday at the beach. We will say, like Jim Elliott, we will, we will give up that which we cannot keep to gain that which we can never lose. You can trust in our appeal because our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Their concept of gain was completely different from that of the world. And the reason why Paul can say this is because he's living fully, wholly, completely for another. He says in verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... He says that he has been set apart, that he has been tested and approved, that he has been entrusted, that he has been commissioned by God. He says he's been approved by God. And and the meaning of this word is one who is asked to be considered to fulfill an important public position. This person is then examined. They're given a time where they're, they're... put in this position and and, and they're carefully scrutinized. And if they're considered fit or worthy, then that position is theirs. And here Paul is saying, I've been tested and approved in that way by God. Throughout Scripture, God tests the heart and minds of all people, brings curses upon those whose deeds are evil and blessings upon those whose deeds are blameless. And so I'm left with the question, how? How is it that Paul is tested and approved? How can Paul say this about himself and Sylvanus and Timothy? Well, maybe, you know, a few weeks ago we looked at 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7. And we saw that, we learned that our faith is tested and found genuine in the crucible of trial and suffering. And it's clear from Paul's life that that was the case. Maybe Paul could be confident that he has been approved because God's grace has enabled him to endure such suffering, to continue to be faithful to his call to ministry. Paul says in Philippians 3 that according to the law, he was blameless, and that all he really needed was to be humbled and to learn to be completely dependent upon God. So maybe... Maybe this testing and approving was, was what God did in his humiliation in Jerusalem, or, or that when he had to go back and live in Damascus with mom and dad and making tents and living in a cave and kind of being humbled there in, in Arabia. Because all that happened before he was commissioned to ministry in Antioch, remember? Or maybe one could argue that it happened on the Damascus road when he saw the vision of Jesus and was struck blind. 
maybe all the above and more. Who knows? But in these three instances that I just point out, there was, there was something that was very common in all of them. God tested through suffering and hardship. Each one of those situations was not easy. Regardless, with the boldness, with boldness in God, Paul declares that he has been approved by God, that he faithfully follows the example of Christ in love, in gentleness, in holiness. That means that he does not sin, in righteousness, that he always does what is right, in blamelessness, that he is without fault. I got to tell you, God has been beating me up with this passage this week. I mean, I talked with Quinn and Josh, well, I guess is the Saturday, the Friday before last about this, and God has just been working me over. How could Paul say that he has been approved by God? He has been tested and approved holy, righteous, blameless, in gentleness, in love? Are you kidding me? How could you say that? Now, I'm sure that Paul's life was much more consistent than mine and much more consistent than yours, but still to say I am without blame, that I am holy, that I am righteous. I can assure you that when I look at my life, that is not the case. There are many of my messages and my methods and my motives that are tainted by sin. I I might... I can say to you to one degree or another that I have been tested and approved by the North American Mission Board to be a missionary here in Champaign-Urbana. I can tell you that to one degree or another, I have been tested and approved by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary because I have a degree that I don't put on my wall that says that I'm approved for ministry. I might say from one degree or another that I have been approved by the Illinois Baptist State Association because those guys were dumb enough to give me money to come up here. I might even say from one degree to one degree or another that I have been tested and approved by the elders at Clifton Baptist Church because they are our sponsor church and they were willing to send us up here. I might even say from one degree to one degree or another, you might test me and approve me and consider me worthy to be in this position. But I would not dare say God does. (laughs) I know my heart. I would, so, so how could Paul say that? How could he have that kind of confidence? How could he be so audacious and bold to say, I have been approved by God? I think the answer to that question comes in that Paul was not trusting in his own righteousness, but completely in the righteousness of another. I think that Paul can say, I've been tested and proved and I find myself holy, righteous, and blameless because I am trusting in the holiness, the righteousness, and the blamelessness of Jesus Christ alone. He wholeheartedly believed that he was justified. That means that he has been declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He wholeheartedly believed that his sin had been imputed or had been accredited to Jesus on the cross and that Jesus' righteousness has been imputed or accredited to him. This is what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. That through faith in Jesus Christ alone, 
He takes on our sin and we receive His righteousness. That's a great exchange. And in this sense, all who have truly repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ can say, I've been approved by God. God can look at you and say, approved, 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 approved. It's because when he looks at you, he doesn't see Josh, he sees Christ. When he looks at Kelly, he sees Christ. When he looks at Lonnie, he sees Christ. That's a great gift that we can say, I have been approved by God. And because of that, because of this glorious truth, Paul was inspired then to live in a manner worthy of his calling. As he beheld the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as he beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, he was transformed by it. It's not as though he just stayed in that position of being declared approved by God. No, he actually became approved by God because his desire was to be more and more and more like the one who approved him. He wanted to be like Christ. He became what he beheld. So let me ask you, what are you seeking to gain? What is it that you're living for the things of this world things like pleasure wealth comfort family the approval of others entertainment ease where are you living for Christ what are you beholding we become what we behold if we spend all our resources, all our time, all our energy focusing on the things of the world, we're going to be just like it. But if we focus on Christ, if we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another, becoming more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. We become what we behold. So no guts, no gain, and no glory. The third key to a fail-proof ministry is that it is done to the glory of God. Paul is in no way seeking his own glory. His ministry is not about him to satisfy his own vanity. And it's sad to see that that so much ministry is done to prove ourselves. It's about our success or our pride or our glory. But Paul says in verse 4, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Because we have been approved by God for the purpose of being entrusted as stewards of God's gospel. Therefore we speak, not for our own glory or to receive glory from others, but to please, to honor, to glorify another. Paul recognized that he had been commissioned with the gospel of God. 
that he was a steward of God's message, God's servant, one who was to manage or tend to God's message on his behalf. So he's not seeking his own will or his own glory, but his desire is to faithfully represent Christ. Numerous times he calls himself a bondservant of Christ. A bondservant is someone who sells himself or indentures himself as a slave to serve another. And as he went about from city to city, Paul was given this duty. Not only was he entrusted with the gospel, but he was entrusting the gospel to faithful men, to faithful stewards who would be able to teach others also. So as he went about as one improved, approved by God, entrusted with the gospel, so he went out, finding qualified men to entrust them with the gospel as well, to fulfill that role. And though Paul was specifically appointed as an apostle, and though he, he searched diligently for qualified elders to entrust the gospel to them, there is one sense in which all of us, have been entrusted with the gospel. To receive the gospel is to be a herald of the gospel. There's no distinction in Scripture. Jesus says that if anyone is to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So to receive the gospel is then to speak the gospel. There is no distinction. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a disciple maker. That's just how it goes. And to be entrusted with this gospel is to speak the gospel. This is important. Receiving the gospel is not an ends in and of itself. Nor is it intended simply to change or improve the person who receives it. We don't receive it just to better ourselves or to fill up what is lacking in our lives. The gospel is not living charitably or doing noble things. We can't live out the gospel unless people know that the reason why we do the things that we do are because of the gospel. We have to bear witness to the faith that, that resides within us. No gospel. <clears throat> no, the gospel is a message that we hear and we receive. And it so radically reorients our lives that in turn we, we share it with others. It's a powerful message. It's a transforming message. And it is a self-sustaining message. But it's not a pleasant message. Flip on over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. Here's what Paul has to say about this unpleasant message. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. 
to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Some will smell the fragrance of Christ, and to them it will lead to life. But to others, they will smell the aroma of Christ, and it will be as a rotting corpse. Our goal is not to please man. Not to seek the glory and praise and favor of people. Well-known pastor John MacArthur reminds us that the minister or the preacher's responsibility is not to minimize conflict. The preacher's job is to expose sin. To expose the symptoms of sin and the seat of sin. And to confront the fatal condition of unredeemed humanity. And to offer the cure for the wretchedness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We confront sin. We preach judgment. We preach law. We preach Christ crucified. And we are, and we are to call for repentance. And often what that produces is opposition. If we're preaching the gospel or a gospel that is favorable to men. If our message is scratching, itching ears, and we find that more and more people just want to come and and hear more and hear more and hear more, just by examining that, we've got to be careful that we're preaching a false gospel. We, We have to be careful that we're not existing to please man, but to please God alone. We need to make sure that we are preaching diligently the gospel. God has already promised that some will receive the message and that they'll love it. That message will be a fragrance that just draws them in and leads them to life. And others will be repulsed by it. They'll hate it and they'll hate you for it. But we are the fragrance. We we are not the fragrance of Christ everywhere. And notice that he says everywhere. In order to please man. Instead, it says, look back at the passage again. It says, Paul says that that God's people go out as a fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. He says, because we are the aroma of Christ to God. Did you notice that? We are the aroma of Christ to God. The one who smells and is op- that, that is ultimately honored in that, that aroma. And this is dealing with Old Testament imagery of incense, right? That was meant to be given to God, a pleasing aroma. Or, or the sacrifices being burnt, right? A pleasing aroma to God. is ultimately God. When we go out as the fragrance of Christ everywhere, it is God who is pleased, who is delighted in that. It's a secondary thing for those who smell it and it gives them life. Ultimately, it is to God. So we speak not to please God, man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Our soul's desire must be to live for God, to please Him. The greatest glory that I could ever behold is to stand before Christ at the end of my life and hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Enter into your master's joy. And this is an amazing thing. God gets the glory and I get the joy. As Peter said when we looked a few, a few weeks ago, at the end of all things, when Christ's salvation is fully and finally come, not only is God received praise and glory and honor at the day of Christ Jesus, but we too get to receive praise and glory and honor at the day of Christ Jesus. This is an amazing thing. Not only do we spend our lives giving glory, but we receive glory from the one who it matters most. To receive it from Christ. To, to, to be able to enter into our master's joy. This is the glory that we are to be seeking for. Not some trifle, momentary glory from man. Who are never satisfied and we're always exhausting ourselves to please them. But seek the glory of God. To be of a, a, an aroma of Christ to God. That's our glory. That's what we seek. God gets the glory and you get eternal joy. So boldness in God, the commissioning of God, and doing all things to the glory of God are three keys to a fail-proof ministry. Without them, all our efforts in ministry are vain and empty. If we want our ministry to truly be profitable, we must embrace this slogan, no guts, no gain, no glory. But not in a worldly sense. We don't have guts in ourselves, but we're bold in another. We don't strive for gain for ourselves, but ironically, we receive it from another. And we don't seek glory for ourselves, but we seek to give it to another. And when we do, we find that unwavering boldness, all eternal gain, all soul-satisfying glory can be ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, what thanks can we give for this truth? That you have, apart from anything that we can do, set your love on us by your Son, Jesus Christ. That in Him, you offer power and truth and boldness that are found in you. In Him, you offer us all gain all the glory that our, our souls ultimately satis, that, that seek satisfaction in to be found ultimately in You. God, we realize that we are sinners, that we have rebelled against You in thought, in word, in deed. We've gone about hating You, seeking to live our lives apart from You, without You. And if we're honest at all, we'd say, you know what, this is not cutting it. I am not satisfied. I am not happy. There is no joy here. There is no gain. But God, You offer it freely through Your Son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that this message will sink deep into our hearts. That our desire would be to go out from here and to be bold in our God. To seek gain from our God, not from the world. And to give glory to and receive glory from our God. Because from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever. Amen.